Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Pressbox Access. Jerry Tipton covered University of Kentucky basketball as a beat reporter for 41 years. 41 years! Jerry was with the Wildcats, or as the faithful call them, the Cats. Day after day, season after season, from 1981 until his retirement in July. First one in the media room, last one to leave. Jerry was always there, in the eye of the big blue hurricane, like a rock of journalistic integrity. He was never afraid to ask the hard questions. That didn't make Jerry popular with some fans, but he's a legend among his peers. I mean, 41 years covering the Cats, and somehow the Hall of Famer kept his sanity and sense of humor. Hey, Jerry, thanks for taking time from the grueling demands of your retirement to join us on Press Box Access. <laughs> well, thank you, Todd. Yes, it's, a, it's an interesting experience. I, I tell people I, I have never retired before, so I don't know exactly how to do this, but uh, so far, so good. Well, I know, I know one thing about retirement. You're buying all the beer right now, right, for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm actually, one of my... Uh, Objectives. I think I, I like to have objectives and goals and to be trying to achieve. And one of them is I'm trying to trim up and uh, get in better shape. I don't know why exactly one of my sons asked me. But uh, so that's my goal. I've been working out and no alcohol. So uh, we'll see. Well, that doesn't mean you can't buy it for me, so, you know. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we first met, I think it was 1986, when I was a snot-nosed kid at the Colonel, the University of Kentucky student paper. And this was early in your legendary tenure as the beat reporter covering the University of Kentucky basketball for the Lexington Herald-Leader. Uh, you ended up carving out a Hall of Fame career 41 years on the Kentucky beat until you retired on July 1st of 2022. 41 years, Jerry, when you reflect on that, uh, what do you think about? Well, it, it seems uh, sort of unbelievable, to be honest with you. And, uh, and I, in my farewell column, I uh, pointed out that uh, I kind of work and live in a bubble uh, where I'm only thinking about the last one or two stories, usually second guessing what I've done, how it could have been better, <clears throat> and then thinking ahead one or two stories. But I don't, you know, I don't, I'm sort of, it's kind of embarrassing, to be honest. I don't know why, but 41 years, uh, you know, and uh, it's, it is hard to wrap my head around. I, I, I know uh, Adolph Rupp was the Kentucky coach for 42 years, so I didn't want to match him. I wanted, yeah. he should be alone. Yeah. Well, you covered more than 1,200 Kentucky games, three national championship teams, nine different teams and all that went to the Final Four, six coaches. I mean, when you think about 
everything you covered in totality. How would you sum that up? Well, I've always felt lucky, you know, from day one to be covering something that, as you know, the readers are so intently interested in. And it was almost like when our circulation was however many thousand it was, I, uh, I considered them all copy editors. They were looking <laughs> at the stories almost word for word. And in a way, that was good because it sort of at least kept me on my toes more so than they might have been otherwise. And like the journalism professors say, you shouldn't assume that they sort of echoed that in their own way, the readers did, because they were, you know, they were checking facts and spelling and, and everything. And in a way, that was good. It, it took some adjusting but it was a good adjustment to make. Well, when you think about it, you as a writer, you want to write for somebody that's passionate about the subject, right? Absolutely. That's, uh, you, know, no, you know, that was one of the many benefits of covering Kentucky that, you know, you knew your stories were going to be read. And when, you know, if you happen to do a good story, you know, maybe somebody around the now in the age of the Internet and so on, Somebody, you know, people around the country or world, I suppose, could read the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, you know, that's an also uh, a, a thing to keep you on your toes. But, uh, but I felt very blessed to be writing about something people care about. Right. Well, I mean, Rick Pitino once called it the Roman Empire of college basketball, Kentucky basketball. <laughs> and, you know, you, you start out uh, your own career. You were working in Huntington, West Virginia for several years, right? You were doing uh, Marshall basketball and, and Ohio and West Virginia high schools. And, and I think you were even a bowling writer. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, you learned how to write about bowling, and you did a Sunday bowling column. I'm fixated on this because I'm fascinated. Was there recruiting and bowling? <laughs> well, bowling was like a world unto itself. Yes. And, and the people that bowled and read the bowling column were into it. I don't know what percentage of the total readers fit that description, <laughs> but the ones that did were into it. It wasn't uh, recreation. It was more than that. And so anyway, I, that was the first, uh, that was kind of my introduction into uh, how journalism can lead to controversy because... Uh, really? If you bowled, I went around to, there were three bowling houses in, in Huntington and one in Ashland, Kentucky. And I had to go around on Friday morning and get the scores for the week. And then I would come back to the office and type up, everybody had a 200 game and a 600 series if, or higher, if I remember. And so that was the agate that went along with the, <laughs> the bowling column. And I always went to this one bowling house, Ted Ned's Pro Bowl. Yes. I went there last. That was in Huntington. And uh, I would get lunch there because now it was late morning, and they had a great tuna sandwich, so I would get a tuna sandwich. <laughs> and if the owner, if T usually it was Ted, if he was there, he would insist on paying for the sandwich. And looking back on it now, I should not have done that. Right. I didn't know better. So anyway, to get to the chase, if you bowled a, a really good score in a game or a series, the local bowling secretary, for lack of a better word, would come around to the alley, to the bowling house, make sure everything was right, make sure it happened, <laughs> make sure the conditions were right, there was nothing, no cheating. And then if everything was fine the secretary would send something to the national bowling office 
and they, the national office, would send you, the bowler, a certificate recognizing, acknowledging <laughs> your great game. So anyway, the secretary went to Ted and Ed's, and they saw that uh, the, the lanes were not oiled correctly. You Ooh. oil the lanes so there's less friction on the ball Ooh. rolling across the wood. And if you, you could oil them in a way where the ball was more likely to go into the pocket, and you'd have a better score. So right. he, he did not report this big score. It, you know, it, was, it wasn't legit. So I wrote about that, and I also compared, like, averages. All the houses would post on their walls everybody's big <laughs> average. And so I checked, compared to the houses, and Ted Ned's had higher scores. Oh, scandal. You draw whatever <laughs> conclusion you want to draw. Oh. And so I wrote it. And it caused a controversy, and they had a big meeting. Oh, yeah. And the sports editor and me and bowling officials and Ted and Ed were at this <laughs> meeting. And I, the only thing I'm thinking about is, was it accurate? <laughs> right. That was everything else is out of my area. Right. And nobody ever questioned the accuracy of what I wrote. I talked to the secretary. You know, I didn't make it up. And... Uh, <laughs> So anyway, all they talked about was basically you shouldn't have written. It. Oh, yeah, they didn't right. Say it was right or wrong. I just shouldn't have done it. it wasn't just, good you you should have been on a team, Jerry. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it ends, and uh, I go up to Ted afterwards and and tell him, just so you know, it was, there was nothing personal involved. You know, I was just doing my job, and he said he didn't believe that especially after all the tuna fish sandwiches he bought me. <laughs> so now I felt bad. Compromised. <laughs> and, and dumb. <laughs> so I, I got some money. You know, I reached in my pocket, and, and it wasn't much more than like 10 bucks. Back then, 10 bucks could get you several tuna fish sandwiches. And, I, and he was embarrassed that I was giving him $10 to square it. And I learned about don't take things. Exactly. <laughs> like, it may seem totally innocent, which it did. It didn't cross my mind that I was being bribed. Well, it sounds like it was good training for what you had to deal with. But uh, so you learned a lot about journalism, cover martial basketball and, and other things. And then you show up in Lexington, Kentucky in 1981 um, to cover Kentucky basketball and football at the time, by the way. At what point did you realize you were in dealing with a different beast that is Kentucky basketball? Well, I mean, I learned, uh, I started with football. I mean, that was the start of the school year. So I did football and then basketball. And in 1981, Fran Percy was the coach. And I was a total innocent, you know. And I didn't realize, but I came to realize that he was on the hot seat. And, and so if they didn't have a good season, which, which was not likely, uh, he might get fired. So he wasn't in the best of moods. <laughs> and uh, so this was kind of baptism by fire. And, uh, you know, I was just trying to learn. And I think the new guy can be pretty easy to pick on. <laughs> so, so I got picked on some. And uh, I remember, if you remember D.G. Fitzmorris, he was mm -hmm. the columnist at the Herald-Eater at the time. And he... Barry, he was a great guy. I, I was in a city of strangers, and he befriended me and helped me. And I remember he introduced me to Fran Kersey right at the start. And Fran almost immediately asked me, 
what what sport did I like better, football or basketball? And so nowadays I would say football just for political reasons. But back then I was trying to be honest Mm -hmm. without being too honest. So I just said I like both, which was more or less true. Right. That was not the right answer. <laughs> he wanted football as the answer. Yeah. So whatever chance I had for a smooth takeaway on the Kentucky beat, I think, died that day. <laughs> well, then you head into basketball season. And, you know, Kentucky basketball, I'm, I'm a native of Kentucky. I graduated at the University of Kentucky. I feel like I understand where the folks are coming from, uh, the fans. It probably is the most passionate fan base, certainly in college sports. Well, they're, as you know, they're into it. And there's sort of a reverence, I think, they have for Kentucky basketball. And as you know, newsrooms, that's where irreverence reigns. Right. Ideally, anyway. You know, there's no reverence. You're trying to cover something objectively. Right. And you can't do that if you have reverence for it. So anyway, there's kind of a built-in chance for conflict, I would say. And uh, uh, my favorite story along those lines was, Street, if you remember Street and Smith magazine, mm-hmm. it, it was, to me, the preseason magazine back then. Right. And one year, and I think, uh, I can't remember, uh, I guess, I, I don't know if I was looking for a story or the Sunday Notes column, but anyway, in their preseason magazine, this was in the mid-early 80s, they had Kentucky number two in their preseason top 25. What? Yeah, I was going to call Jim O'Brien, the editor, and just do a note. Right. And my thought was, you know, how much he likes Kentucky. He must really like Kentucky, number two in the country. So I call, I get him, and we talk. What do you like about Kentucky? He says, oh, yeah, you know, they have really good guard play, and their big guys are elite. And, you know, so I'm I'm just kind of nodding. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. you know... Nothing surprising there. So then I thought, well, okay, what, what, what kind of feedback have you gotten from Kentucky fans? And he says, oh, they're really mad at me. They're really upset. And I said, really? Why? Why are they upset? He said, they're mad because how could you rate us so low? Number two. Wow. <laughs> Number two in the country. And I think yep. that sums up, you know, they, and they see, and I, there are pro teams that I had that sort of feeling for that they were different and, Mm -hmm. you know, not just among the crowd. And as you know, that's how Kentucky fans see Kentucky. It's in a separate category. I like to say they see Kentucky as the Globetrotters. Everybody else is the Washington Generals. (laughs) And that includes Duke, Carolina, Kansas, whoever you want to say. But it didn't always make for an easy relationship with you and the fans, though, right? Well, I tried to understand, you know, and... uh, and then I tried to make it be a fun thing as much as I could. And uh, after they, uh, you might like this, I think I wrote about this, after they lost to St. Peter's in the tournament this year, I was thinking after I was done with the stories, boy, I bet I'll, I'll get an angry email or two. And uh, the next morning before we left Indianapolis to drive home, uh, I, I was checking my mail and so on, and there was a, an email and early on, it said, I bet you're not going to read this all the way through. And I thought, uh-oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. And uh, right. so it was like Strap a challenge. On. Oh, yeah? Okay, I will read it all the way through. It wasn't that long. But I noticed there were F-bombs in it. And more than once, F-U at me. 
And so, okay, so I read it a second time just to count the F-bombs, and there were six. And so he didn't like a question I asked one of the players. I forget <laughs> that the post-game press conference, you can watch it on, on uh, social media or the internet. Right, right. And not that that, I, don't, I wouldn't want that to make a difference. I'm just trying to do my job. But I'm not thinking, ooh, the fans might hear. <laughs> so anyway, I wrote him back and, and told him that I would ask the sports editor and about my question, did I ask it properly? Was it okay? Mm-hmm. And I also asked John Clay, one of our columnists, right. who was also in the post-game press conference, well, how did that, did I ask it okay? And they both said it was fine. And the guy wrote me back and apologized. Hmm. And I think what the fans want is just some sort of acknowledgement, uh, um, you know, respect for their interest. Mm-hmm. And not, you know, very early on, I might lash back, and I that just fueled the fire. It just right. kind of works. So after that, I tried to be respectful no matter what. Right. And, uh, you know, that seemed to smooth the water as water's out. During 40 years, was there ever a time where it just got to be too much, too negative for you? or um... <laughs> uh, Not really. I mean, it's, it's kind of the fun part of it, I think. Uh, it makes me feel like I'm doing my job, or I was doing my job. Right. That if, if everybody was just constantly applauding, I would wonder if I was doing an, the, you know, being objective about what I was covering. Right. So I always felt like that if the reporter is doing his or her job and the coach is doing his or her job or the fans, that it, there's a built-in friction there because there's different agendas. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just trying to inform the reader as best I can or put things in perspective. Right. And, you know, and for the most part, you know, the coach is trying to win games. And sometimes being uh, honest in what's going on might not be helpful in right. terms of uh, winning. Right. Well, let's think about the perspectives of, of that they all come together at certain times for, for almost like historic moments. And one of the, the times that I recall uh, that I, I'm sure was a memory of your own was the 1983 Dream Game. And that's Louisville versus Kentucky, NCAA Mideast Regional, down in Knoxville of all places. And I think it was like the first time in 24 years that the schools had played um, it was just a, such a huge deal in the state of Kentucky. You're at that game. Put us in the arena. What was the atmosphere like at that day? Well, it was surreal. That would be the word I would use because Louisville had been lobbying publicly for a series, start a series in Kentucky. You know, I think Kentucky, they cited a policy that wouldn't allow them to play Louisville in the regular season. Yeah. So I asked them for a copy of the policy. I wanted to read it. And they, I think it was an open records request. I can't remember for sure. But the answer was, well, there's not a written policy. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's verbal. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's a policy with quotation marks, I guess, around it. And uh, so, okay. And I remember, I believe it was CBS interviewed Joby Hall, I think during the season. And one of their questions was playing Louisville, and he walked away. End of interview. And so it was that, that touchy of a, Subject, and mm-hmm. so for them to be playing, of course, you know, at the NCAA tournament, you're, no, I don't care what. There's no policy there, right? And they hadn't played since the '59 NCAA tournament, mm-hmm. and uh, so they played. Just I remember seeing the two teams. The governor, as you remember, wore a sport coat that was half blue and half red. 
Yeah, right. So he's staying neutral. And just to see the two uh, teams on the court warming up for the game was unbelievable. You know, it was like the uh, Israelis and the Palestinians were going <laughs> to play a basketball game. And, you know, uh, it just didn't seem like this was possible. Right. So anyway, they play. And, uh, of course, Louisville wins in overtime. And, uh, you know, the so-called dream game. But it was such a great game, a memorable game, that the state legislature got involved, as you may remember. And they, they, the word got out that they were going to pass a law mandating Kentucky to play Louisville. Mm-hmm. And so they made an exception in the policy. And uh, they played the next season, started a series, which continues to this day. Right. And they hadn't played in the, I looked it up, they hadn't played this in the regular season since 1922. Wow. And so they played in 80, what would that be, 83, 84? 61 years, 62 years, right. yeah. Right. So they played then, and it's been great. You know, the fans are, you know, are, they're always engaged, but right. they're really, really engaged for that. But when you're at a game like that 83 game, Kentucky-Louisville, do you actually feel like you're at more than a basketball game? Yes. You feel like every once in a while... You feel like you're witnessing history. Yeah. And that's, you know, that was the feeling with that game. Right. That, you know, that's something that's going to be remembered for a long, long time. Yeah, I felt privileged to be there. Some of those kind of stories I don't read. I don't read them because I'm afraid I failed to capture, you know, the magnitude of what, what I just saw. Well, you mentioned history, and and obviously the game that people associate historically with Kentucky, you know, besides the fact that they won all their national championships, they played in what many people consider the greatest college game ever, the 92 Duke game in the Eastern Finals of the NCAA Tournament, Eastern Regional uh, in Philadelphia, the Leitner game, right? The Leitner shot. When you think about that game, do you remember what your feeling was when the game ended and you had to write? It was, I was overwhelmed. I, I felt inadequate to the task. I was just like, you know, lost. What do I do? And I remember wondering, should I go to the formal press conferences with the coaches? And I guess they brought players. I don't, I think they did. Or go to the locker room. Mm. And nowadays, or, you know, I, I went to the press conference and it was fine. I mean, it was what it was. But I wish I had gone to the locker room because I think the, the emotions were raw. And uh, I think that would have been the place to be to try to capture the emotional tidal wave that that game was. Why did it feel overwhelming? What was it about it? It was just the magnitude of it. You know, Dukes, I think they were number one, but they were the defending national champion. Kentucky, and I don't think I captured this very well, but this was the, like, the pinnacle of a three-year rebuilding operation by Rick Pitino. They had, right. He came in 89-90, as you know, and right. the, the, the program was on probation. No tournament in 90 and 91. And they got good. They had the best record in the SEC his second year. But they were ineligible to win the championship. So, But 91-92 was their, back, their first year back as eligible for the tournament. And they were Kentucky again. Mm. Kentucky was Kentucky, a contender to win the national championship. They played Duke, 
uh, the defending champion. The game goes into overtime. They make a shot with 2.1 seconds left. And, uh, of course, you know the rest. But I remember one little thing that I'm proud of is that my seat was near, uh, it was about uh, the top of the key on the end of the court for the inbounds pass. Mm-hmm. And uh, that Grant Hill threw, if I remember right. And I noticed that Kentucky did not guard the inbounder. They had two guys on Leitner. Unfortunately for Kentucky, they both played behind him. So he had an easy way to catch the ball. And they were both shorter than him. So there wasn't a big chore to turn. Mashburn had fouled out, Jamal Mashburn. And uh, so it happened, you know, like right in my living room, <laughs> so to <laughs> right. speak. And uh, I remember seeing uh, Mike Shashevsky go up to Kaywood Ledford. It was Kaywood Ledford's last game. Yeah, legendary Kentucky announcer. Yeah, right? legendary announcer, 39 years. And he was an icon. You talk about an icon. He was an icon. And I remember uh, when Sean Woods made the shot with 2.1 seconds, left a bank straight in front of the basket, about maybe seven, eight feet. Mm-hmm. I don't know how often you can do that. You know what I mean? But he did it. And uh, Ralph Hacker was the color man on the radio broadcast of Kentucky. And he was kind of like getting into celebratory mood. Mm-hmm. And Kay Wood calmed him down and pointed out the game's not over yet. And, of course, then the inbounds to Leitner, he makes the shot. Krzyzewski comes to the radio stand there and says some kind words to Kentucky fans who are listening yeah. on the radio. Yeah, which I remember was nice. that. And then I remember, I remember hearing, not live, but hearing about, that Kaywood ended his broadcast by quoting the poet John Greenleaf Whittier, that about the saddest words of, of pen and tongue are, it might have been. And I just thought, man, I wish I could go out. I didn't think of then, <laughs> but in, since then, what a classy, great way to bow out, quoting a poet. Right. Cable was such a, he was the voice of Kentucky basketball for so many years. Too. Right, right. He brought an objectivity to it, which right. I admired. You could sort of tell, you know, if, if Kentucky won, that was good. He won, right. you know, right. he liked that. But he, but he was a professional broadcaster at the same time. Right. What do you remember about the game besides the obvious Leitner shot? Uh, is there is there just things that as the game unfolded, it was you realized? Did you realize you were watching what became known as the greatest game in college basketball? Uh, you know, not as well as I wish I had. I mean, it was obviously a riveting game, and you know, it, it held your attention, and you know, it was rich with uh, storyline possibilities. But, uh, you know, my instinct, especially then, was, and it continued, was not to overdo it. I tried to stay within certain bounds, and I've second-guessed that many times as I've reflected Mm. on that game. I wish I had gone overboard. And I remember being at, it was in Philadelphia, and the next morning at the Philadelphia airport, we're going to fly back, and I'm reading, like, the Philly paper, and, you know, and they went full tilt on what a historic, and I'm, I'm kicking myself, saying, man, I wish I had gone more towards, you know, just let myself be overwhelmed hmm. in the story. It's interesting that you still think that all these years later. It's like you're oh, still, well. still thinking about the work that you did, you know? 
Well, that's kind of my nature. I had my last sports editor in Huntington was a guy named Mike Connell. And he was on, he was a, like an assistant city editor. He, he, he didn't want to be sports editor, but they made him sports editor. They, you know, they needed a sports editor. They made him. And he, he covered it as news. And okay. I remember one of the things is, he said several things that stuck with, with me. But one of them was, you reach a certain plateau in your development when you can improve your story each time you read it. And I, it took me a long time, probably too long, to get to that. <laughs> but that's kind of my nature, or was, that each time I read it, I could improve it. And the Leitner game was one that I, I wished I had reread several times. But, you know, it's gone now. Well, Leitner makes, well, Leitner makes the shot. And you mentioned Rick Pitino, and people debate about, you know, should you have guarded the inbounds? You know, yeah, we can talk that all night. But the fact of the matter is, Kentucky's not there without Pitino. You know, he rebuilt that program, and that eight years that he was there were just... It struck me looking back that he was the right guy at the right place at the right time. Do you agree with that, and why do you think so? Oh, absolutely. He was, you know, he'd been around the block. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't some guy learning. And he, and he, I think his personality, he could handle being the Kentucky coach. What do you mean by that, Jerry? Well, that you're, John Calipari says it's like wearing a big, heavy winter coat all the time, meaning you get noticed wherever you go. You're a celebrity. Billy Gillespie was not comfortable with that, being a celebrity. He just wanted to be a coach. But at Kentucky, you know, you're the coach. Everything you do is subject to being second-guessed, as you know. And, like, and every double dribble is going to be examined for what went wrong. Why did the coach let that happen? And you have to have a strong personality uh, to do that. And uh, Rick Pitino's first year, to me, in all of my 41 years, stands out because their record was 14-14, and 14, which by Kentucky standards is awful. Right. And... The fans were overjoyed. They were absolutely thrilled. They had fun. It wasn't about conquering the Washington Generals. It was purely about fun. And that's and because were, that's, and that's because they were on probation, and the program was devastated. You know, by the the rules breaking also, and the punishment. Yeah, most of the good players transferred. Right, the better players transferred. And so there was zero expectation. They were not even, you know, a, you know, they were nothing. They weren't Kentucky. And the fans loved the style, the running, pressing. There was constant action and the three-point shot. So there was, you know, there was a thrill likely to happen again and again and again. And if I remember right, that first year they beat LSU at home. And LSU had Chris Jackson, as he was known then, an all-SEC player. He might have been player of the year. Shaquille O'Neal and Stanley Roberts. They were NCAA tournament winning it good. Mm-hmm. Kentucky beat them here just because their, I think their style contributed to that. It was so different back then. They right. shoot so many threes. And it was they weren't going to let it be a half-court game where the superior talent prevails. They were going to make it up and down, run, and, uh, of course, they were used to that. That was the way they played. The other teams usually weren't. And that that whole season was exceptional. 
Patino was very entertaining himself in his own way, totally different from what Kentucky fans were used to Mm -hmm. as far as being out there, I think, personality-wise. And they just were thrilled, absolutely thrilled. And it was interesting that once he, he went to the Celtics after he left Kentucky, and then he goes to Louisville, and he becomes the prime villain. Right. That's <laughs> went, still amazing. You know, 180 degrees the other way, yeah. which is interesting. Right. His intensity never seemed to waver. What was he like to cover as a beat reporter? Things changed with him because until then, uh, with Joe B. Hall and then Eddie Sutton, practices were open to the media. You could go to practices, talk to whoever you wanted to after the game or after the practice, as long as they were, uh, you know, didn't have class or whatever to go to. Right. Talk to a coach. It was much more, more in, informal. I remember with Eddie Sutton, one Thanksgiving, I wasn't married yet. I had nothing to do. They practiced three times that day. I went to all three practices <laughs> just for something to do. And, you know, maybe I could pick up something. Who knows? Right. You know. But with with, Cal- with Patino, it changed. It became more of a, uh, the media was here and the coach and the program were there. And the interaction was more controlled mm-hmm. at that point. And, uh, but he was on, I remember they did a, a scrimmage as I remember, it was the coaches and maybe like pro- people in the program against the media at, at a high school in Lexington. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rock Oliver guarded me. He was the <laughs> strength coach. And I remember hearing that whoever Rock Oliver guarded, you know, that was the guy they were going to shut down. <laughs> Draw your <own> conclusions. <laughs> well, well, how did you? How did you do, Jerry? I didn't. I got shut down. <laughs> I think I, I maybe took one or two shots and missed them both. And, uh, he didn't guard. He didn't have to guard me. Guard me, but he guarded me. And uh, you know. But I, I, I wondered. I don't remember asking. But I wondered if that was a way to kind of introduce the media to the style of play. Hmm. If I remember right, they pressed and uh, shot threes. Tubby Smith had like thirty-six points. Wow! In, in that, in that, whatever you want to call it, I started to say scrimmage, but that's probably <laughs> no. You guys were the Washington Generals that you talk about. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, we talked a lot here about the '92 team that you know brought Kentucky back from the ashes of probation. The centerpiece of that team was Jamal Mashburn. What made Mashburn special? Well, I remember uh, in my farewell thing I wrote that uh, hearing coaches say. The difference between good players and great players is the great player makes his teammates better. And that's what Mashburn was. And I remember the first time I saw him, it was a high school all-star game in Louisville. And, of course, we knew he was coming to Kentucky. And here's this guy, 6'8", and he was a little heavy then. Mm -hmm. He was too heavy, really. And I bet he was 240 or 250. And you see this big body with guard skills. The way he played was like six foot 180, but in a 6'8", 250 body. Right. So he had both things going, skill and uh, muscle. It wasn't really muscle. At the <laughs> time, yeah. In there too. And uh, I remember they played a scrimmage, a preseason scrimmage back then. Uh, they went around the state and played two or three inter-squad scrimmages. 
And of course, the fans in those areas were really jacked up. They were really excited. And uh, in one of them, it might have been the first one, we talked to Rick Pitino afterwards, and he says Jamal Mashburn's going to be one, I think he said one of, he may have said the best players in Kentucky history. That gets your attention. Right. (laughs) That makes you, whoa, wait a minute. Did he say what I think he just said? And I think that uh, one of the best would fit. Right, definitely. And he, you know, like I say, he really, I remember noticing and going into his second year, his body was sculpted now. And he was a different person. I think that was uh, 91, 92, the Leitner. Yes, Mm -hmm. that was the Leitner year. And he was, uh, you know, he still was big, 6'8", and he could still do things that big guys could do. Right. Well, you know, well, Rock, Rock Oliver had to like give up time from shutting you down to go work with Mashburn. <laughs> yeah, that was a sacrifice for Rock. That's, that's a good point. Uh, but he was, you know, a nice guy. He didn't seem to be consumed with his celebrity. Hmm. And I remember it was before a game, either his second or third year at home game, and they mispronounced his name. And I happened, the PA guy, and I happened to be like standing near him. And he just kind of smiled. You know, it wasn't like, hey, I'm Jamal Mashburn. You got to get my name right. And I was Mm. impressed by that. Well, it says a lot about him and his talent and his personality. What other players come to mind when you think about all the years that you covered? You covered so many great players, but are there ones that uh, that you just enjoyed either covering or or watching play? Well, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, we could take up the whole show just talking about players that, made a lasting memory. Uh, another guy that comes to mind for me is Tyler Eulis. And he was uh, 5'8", I think. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a David and Goliath kind of storyline. And he was just so smart. And that, uh, that appeals to me. The power and all of that, I get it. It's part of the game. The athleticism, I get it. It's part of the game. And is valuable. But intelligence is something that appeals to me, a smart player. And I remember they went to the Bahamas the summer before his freshman year, played, I think it was six exhibition games in eight days. And everyone, including me, was exhausted. (laughs) Because it was just like, gee, you know, just being away for eight or nine days would, you know, be consuming. But they played six games. And uh, I remember noticing... He was the smartest player on the court. This is a freshman that hasn't played a college game yet. And he was like a point guard. And he would take the the outlet pass, would come to him. And again and again, he would like almost throw touch passes down the court to a teammate for a fast break layup. He he, He saw the whole court. He knew where everyone was. A freshman. (laughs) You know, I was just, you know, really blown away by this. John Calipari's had a lot of great point guards. But if you compare the numbers of each one, John Wall, uh, I'm trying to remember them all, Ashton Hagens, Brandon Knight, all sorts of guys, Euless's numbers dwarf all of them. It's Mm. not even close. And, uh, you know, that was, I just loved watching him play. And the other thing that jumped out at me was like, of course, the other teams would try to post him up because he was only 5'8", thin, And he wasn't having it. You know, he was (laughs) contesting for that spot at the post. You weren't going to just get it. 
and just post him up, he was going to make you work to get the spot on the post you wanted. There was all sorts of guys. I mean, Kenny Walker, Sam Bowie. My first two years on the beat were the two years Sam Bowie sat out. He had a stress fracture in his lower leg, I think left leg. And, of course, you know, I I was aware that Sam Bowie was really good, a seven-footer or close to it. And I remember he didn't play at all. I never... And then the second year, they had a practice, and he practiced, and I want in a scrimmage kind of thing, and I wanted to see him. I mean, yeah. I've been hearing about and writing about this guy that's not playing. I wanted to see him play in person, and uh, he was the best player on the floor, and he hadn't played in a year and a half or whatever it was, and he still wasn't able to play in games. He didn't play in a game that season, but he played in this one scrimmage, best player on the court. And I wonder, maybe they would have won a national championship in either my first or second year, or both, if he had been playing. Well, let's blame you for not winning it, though. You know, it's it's Tipton, so it's that new guy. It's a bowling rider from West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, yeah, I don't want to say who, but somebody, uh, another, let's say, media person was mocking me, and, uh, and that's what he said. He said that I was... <laughs> I, w- I used to be a bowling writer, and I thought, yeah, I yeah. was. Set there's him no up, sh- and I'll knock him down. There's no shame in that. Yeah. yeah. I know what a 7-10 split is. Okay. <laughs> well, you mentioned several of the coaches, and you and you covered six of them. Uh, the first one was Joe Hall. And when you think about how, you know, Patino and John Calipari are, they're just so out there, big personalities. And that's kind of what I think of as Kentucky basketball in this era of the last 30 years. But Joe Hall was a much different type of character, right? I mean, that was a... Well, you tell us. Well, the first thing to think of is that he was from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And he grew... I think Cynthiana, if I remember. Right, which yep. is about maybe an hour north of Lexington. And uh, he was a Kentucky fan. So, you know, the way we talk about Kentucky fans being consumed with Kentucky basketball... That was Joe B. Hall. He right. cared to the max. And so now he's the coach. He's getting second-guessed. There's all this pressure. And among the people second-guessing him was Adolf Rupp. Mm. Adolf Rupp, the icon. And so any second-guessing he does hits home. Right. You know, this is like God second-guessing you. There's yeah, no Rupp, fun. Rupp. Rupp retired, and they made him retire in like 72, I think, and he right. kept an office down the hall from Joe. He kept an office, and yeah. he kept doing a, I don't know if it was radio or TV show, yeah. show weekly yeah. TV show. And on the show, he second-guessed Joe B. Hall. Mm. I wasn't here then. This is right. what I've been told by people that knew, that weren't right. here. I think, it's as you would agree, it's hard enough following a legend right. as the coach, but to have the legend second-guessing you... Publicly, I, from what I've, I'm told, you know, the Kentucky fandom was split. You know, there were some people that thought Rupp was not treated fairly and he should still be the coach. And there were some people that were rooting for Joby Hall and wanted Joby Hall to succeed because mm-hmm. he was the Kentucky coach. So I, by the time I came in, Coach Adolph Rupp had died. So that part had subsided. But the second guessing and all of that was still part of it. So any objectivity would almost be a sin. You know, <laughs> Kentucky's, is, 
as you know, Kentucky basketball is an exception to objectivity. That's for everything else. Mm-hmm. Okay. But Kentucky basketball is so magnificent that if you're objective, then you don't care. Right. And, uh, and so Joe Hall, Joe Hall sees you as a big sinner. Was it a day-to-day battle with, with, with Joe B? Well, I wouldn't say day-to-day. But, uh, it, you know, there were times. It wasn't unusual for there. And we had much more access then. So there, <laughs> there was much more of an opportunity for the coach to vent, shall we say. And, uh, and that happened. And uh, I remember, well, no, that doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, it does. Come on. <laughs> okay. Well, there was one time they were practicing. Of course, we got to go to media, got to go to practice. They were work. I don't remember who they were playing, but they were working on a box and one defense. So they were one, there was one guy on the other team they wanted to contain. And I remember the SID person came over to us and basically asked us not to report that they worked on the box and one, mm-hmm. which I didn't. And yeah. as far as I know, no one did. To me, it was like war plans. You don't want to, you know, that's, no, no that's too far. You know, right. you want to right. report the news, but not war plans. So, so maybe I scored a few points there. I doubt right. it. I mean, he called me D.A., and uh, not from the start, but it came to, and I, I was wondering, I naively thought, maybe he's saying district attorney. But after, after some time and reflection, I think he was saying dumbass. <laughs> well, you guys, you guys almost came to blows a couple times, right? Yeah, there was a couple of times where I wondered if uh, we... If, it, it, the fight wasn't going to last long. It wouldn't take him long to beat me up. You know, one punch, and I would be crying for mother. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, one of them had to do with uh, the 84 NCAA tournament. I believe it was the first and second round. It may have been the Sweet 16 Elite Eight. was in Lexington. And the four teams were Kentucky, Louisville, Maryland, and Illinois. And I had the bright idea, sarcasm alert, that maybe I could do something on Joby Hall and Lefty Grizzell, two coaches who accomplished a lot, yet didn't have, uh, there wasn't universal respect. <laughs> and I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I just thought it was interesting mm-hmm. that they had both a lot of success, yet, you know, so I approached both of them and uh, neither one of them warmed up to that idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, Lefty just sort of dismissed me. And uh, Joe B., there were some other people around, not media people, but just people people. And he, I don't remember what he said, but it was a put down. And it was just, I thought, a little over the line. So I told him, hey, don't, don't say that. He objected to me having the uh, gall to try to, uh, I wouldn't call it scold him, but correct him. And uh, he, he kind of said something to the effect of, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> wow. And, uh, you know, what am I going to do about it? Nothing. I'm just going to take it. But, uh, yeah, that one stands out in my mind. Yeah, but but years later when Joe was in retirement and uh, he, he, he passed away in January, you know, rest God rest his soul. Um, you and Joe would go to lunch, right? You know, I was told by people that had been around longer than me, somebody like Billy Reed, a columnist at the Courier and at the Herald Leader at different times, 
that Joe B was a different person when he was the assistant coach. He was friendly, jovial, uh, you know, smiling. You really had to like outgoing. You had to really like him. Then when he became coach, the head coach, he became a different person, much more uptight, much more defensive, but you know, that sort of thing. Cause he was under a lot of pressure. And then after he retired, he kind of reverted back to the more friendly, jovial. And when Rick, one year with John Calipari, he was coaching the Dominican national team in a summer thing. And uh, he had uh, something he had something going on downtown Lexington. They had a blue carpet outside this restaurant. And people came and the media could talk to them on their way into this thing. And Joe B was one of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the friendly, jovial, laughing, kidding. You know, everything was great. And one of the younger media people turned to me and said, was Joe B. like that when he was the coach? And I said, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, he was not. But I talked to him. I did his obit. It was 100 inches. And I talked to him maybe three years before he passed away and told him what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And we met. We talked. He, you know. It went really well. I wrote 100 inches, which is the longest story I've ever written. And I was pretty happy with it, to be honest. I think I hit it right. Right. And, uh, but at one of the lunches, he asked me, do you realize that someday you're going to have to meet your maker and you're going to have to explain some of those stories you did? <laughs> and, and so I kind of smiled. You know, I just thought, you know, it was funny. And, I, you know, I didn't think anything about it. Well, a few minutes later, he said it again. And again, now I'm thinking, I think he wants a response. <laughs> and then about the third time, he says, you, you know, like, hey, I want an answer. He didn't say those words. but mm-hmm. And he said, you know, someday you're going to meet your maker and you'll have to explain those stories. So I said, well, Joe, do you realize that maybe God has a special place for sports writers? And he said, he does. He does. <laughs> I like the thumbs down. He won't even say hell. He'll just point you down. He wanted to make sure I got the message. Oh, man. That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. I mean, yeah, I didn't, you know, it was what it was. Well, one of the things I always admired about you, many, many things I admired about you, Jerry, but, you know, you're unafraid to ask the tough questions. Always objective, always there, trying to get more. And even when things got heated for you, whether it was the fans or the coaches or the officials, whoever, uh, you were always able to shake it off with a sense of humor. Well, I think, I I don't know who said this, but I I fully believe it, that laughter and humor is a coping device. And it's a way to deal with the pressure and so on. And I remember a journalism professor back at Marshall when I was a student saying that if the story is about the reporter, that's not good. And I didn't really understand what that meant, but over time, I got it. And so I tried to keep myself out of it as much as possible. You know, you say ask tough questions. I I didn't think about it in terms of I'm going to ask a tough question. I just thought about it as asking a pointed question or a pertinent question beyond, I I wanted, ideally, I would rather have a conversation and we would just talk. 
But, right. you know, so, you know there, that's part of it. You ask questions. And so I just tried to ask good questions. I wasn't thinking of them as, uh, I'm backing you up against the wall, buddy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I thought that would be injecting myself into it, which I didn't want to do. Right, right. Well, then your sense of humor could bond with somebody like Kalapari, who also seems to have a sense of humor, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think maybe that's a coping device for him, too. Could very well be. <laughs> well, everybody needs a coping device uh, when you're dealing with the uh, the pressure and the intense heat of Kentucky basketball. And nobody, from a reporter's standpoint, did it as well as you did, Jerry. And and I really uh, count my blessings. Uh, I mean, you, in all honesty, had a really big impact on my life, you know, uh, as a college student. It really opened my eyes to doing what I wanted to do, but doing it in a way that I learned how was the right way to do. And that was to be objective and to be a reporter and not a fan. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, you know, I just think being objective leads to better stories. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you know, a fan, you know, that's kind of, you know, to me, that's okay. There's a place for that, certainly, for the fans. And I hope, you know, I want them to be fans. You know, that year with COVID where there weren't as many fans in the stands, that wasn't much fun. I would rather they be there and scream, and if they want to yell at me, that's fine, uh, which they don't. I can't think of hardly any instances of that. But I just think, you know, I'm just, as I tell people, you know, when I'm writing, when I'm asking questions, I'm thinking, what question might a reader have as I'm doing this story? You know, the coach says X. Well, I'm thinking, well, if if I'm a reader, I want to know. Maybe I want to put X in perspective. Or I, there's an obvious hypothetical question that comes to mind dealing with X. I mean, that's the point is to try to do a better story. It's not to uh, hope Kentucky loses or, or anything like that. My rooting interests from the start have been pro teams. That's where I was, the, you know, emotionally involved. But as you know, especially now with social media and the Internet, you're constantly on deadline. There's no time for the rooting. The only thing I'm rooting for is a good storyline to come to mind. Well, we certainly enjoyed uh, having you on the show, Jerry. It's been a lot of fun. Um, once again, I, I, I thank you for your friendship and your guidance, your wisdom. You took me under your wing at a young age and... So many years, I thought, what would Jerry do here? What would Jerry ask? Well, I have, uh, you know, that's a high compliment. And I have my sports writing heroes, too. And you've had several of them on your show. So, uh, you know, that that was enriching for me. So, Well, thanks a lot, Jerry. Really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you the best in retirement. Now, go hit the couch or run some errands for your wonderful wife, Paula. <laughs> I'll definitely do that. All right. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? 
I mean really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.